Ask anyone who was a child back in the 80s, and he will tell you about that breathtaking experience. For no matter how often he saw it, and families went over and over again, the miracle was always the same. There was a quiet that covered the waiting crowds. The amber glow began to seep through the dusk, brightening, brightening, until what had been familiar corridors of the big barn-like building became for him aisles of blinding light and beauty, touched with the gold of heaven. Welcome to The Burrow. I'm your host, Brooke Darty. And that passage was from Melville O'Briney's book, Fond Recollection. It's a collection of Louisville Times articles she penned in the 1940s and 50s. This particular article was printed September 8, 1949, about the Southern Exposition, which makes those children of the 80s children of the 1880s. <laughs> so sit back as we explore the Southern Exposition. In 1872, Louisville held their first industrial exposition to showcase Southern industries that continued off and on for the next 10 years. Although quite the success, it was still no match for much larger world's fairs taking place since 1851. But then, in 1881, Atlanta held an industrial cotton exposition, which attracted visitors from across the globe. The Atlanta Exposition's success led to a buzz around Louisville, mostly fueled by the Courier-Journal newspaper, and the Industrial Exposition Committee took notice. According to the 1880 census, Louisville was near the center of the U.S. population, as well as being seated at the boundary between the North and the South, making a perfect spot for a national exposition. It seems strange today, but Louisville was literally the Midwest, as very few people had ventured west of the Mississippi River. The committee moved forward on their endeavor to attract purveyors of technology, industry, and art, in addition to other merchants for a grand southern exposition. So they began to solicit subscriptions. In the day of podcasts and streaming services, subscription evokes giving support for something in return, but in this context it's used to mean a contribution or participation. The committee chose Bitterman DuPont as president of the committee, the same office he served during the 1872 Industrial Exposition. And yes, he is a member of that DuPont family, but more on them on another episode. By January 1883, the newly dubbed Southern Exposition Committee had three handsome plans and a site. The Great Exhibit Hall was going to be built on 18 acres south of Central Park between 4th and 6th Streets from Hill to A Street, which is now called Galbert or Galbert. An agricultural area complete with 10 acres and a model farm was added south of the hall. As Central Park was conveniently owned by the DuPont family and had already operated as a public space for a couple years, it was poised to be the midway for the exposition. The opening day was set for August 1st of that year, and the exposition was to last for 100 days. 
they decided that opening day admission would be 25 cents for adults and 10 cents for children, with the price going to 50 cents for adults and 25 cents for children afterwards. Today, that 50 cents and 25 cents would be around $15 and $7.50. That's kind of equivalent of a Kentucky State Fair price, with the parking fees included. So the building sat on 15 acres, but only covered 13 acres. There were four open-air courts inside the building and promenades around the building that made up the other two acres. It was 80 feet tall, 620 feet wide, and that was the width between 4th and 6th streets, and 910 feet long. The building itself was made from wood and glass and cost nearly $200,000 in 1883. That's more than $5.4 million in today's money. It was thought the building was the largest wood and glass building created at the time. Once the exposition opened, more than 1,500 industrial and commercial displays filled the enormous building. The exposition would be open from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., but lighting the hall could be tricky. At the time, the only streetlights you might find were gas, besides a few in New York City. Plus, people still use candles as well as oil lamps to light their houses. Gas lights in a space the size of that building would have used as much oxygen as 75,000 people. Therefore, the best option was to use electricity. Incandescent bulbs didn't really use oxygen, and they gave off little to no heat, so the Edison Company agreed to provide 4,600 lights for the exposition hall. These lights alone outnumbered all the incandescent lights in New York City at the time. Each bulb put out the same amount of light as 16 candles. You can insert your own John Hughes joke here. These types of lights had been sunk 100 feet into the sea and still shone bright enough to be seen from the ship's deck. So the power plant itself cost $100,000, which is $2.7 million in today's money. And it took 100 men the entire month of July to install the engines and the 40 miles of copper wire that weighed 40,000 pounds to provide the current to all those light bulbs. The lights were hung at the same distance from the floor and symmetrically from each other to create a uniform effect. The courts and Central Park were lit with arc lights from a Fort Wayne, Indiana company called Fort Wayne Jenny Electric Light Company, which was started by Ronald T. McDonald, among others. Cursory research has not confirmed or denied if he, in fact, was a clown or even ginger. Jenny is the company, and the company name comes from James A. Jenny. He was an inventor of arc lamp and a small dynamo system, and he installed this device at Evans, McDonald, and Company, who then took it, and the rest is history. A rumor circulated that 4th Street would also be illuminated from downtown to the exposition. A Courier-Journal reporter was accosted by a man on the street wanting to know who would pay for the streetlights, as well as why 6th Street wouldn't get the same treatment, as the west side of town provided more subscriptions. The reporter didn't have an immediate answer, but as luck should have it, he ran into Major Wright from the committee, who clarified where the notion came from. Wright implied he had put the idea out there to get more subscriptions because the board needed $300,000 more for the exposition. Wright also added that he hoped the lighting would be done. For nothing. He sure sounds like a golden age capitalist if I ever heard one. Well, the committee decided bronze medals would be given out by a jury of awards to the best displays and exhibits in the 
in five departments. Five departments, natural, animal, vegetable, mineral, machinery, manufactured, transportation, and arts, music, literature, and art, were divided into 25 categories and judged. The Edison Company's light set up one four medals. Edison wasn't present to collect the medals, although it was speculated he might show up to throw the switch. He didn't. Each medal portrays two gentlemen shaking hands in the lower center, a bust on a pedestal with artist's brushes and palette on the left side, and on the right, a gear, a blacksmith's anvil, and a hammer. The top shows an eagle with spread wings above a depiction of the exhibit hall in the center with a decorative border encircling all the images. The back had a laurel encircling the words awarded to with the name of the winning company and category. And speaking of medals, souvenir medals were also available and they were pictured with all sorts of things from the exhibit hall to the Lord's Prayer inscribed on the back. Head over to the Borough blog to see some photographs of the medals that were worn in various departments and uh, some of the souvenir medals too. President Chester A. Arthur accepted the invitation to open the exposition and arrived on the evening of July 31st. The president was greeted at the station by a crowd of 10,000. On opening day, homes and businesses in the city were decked out with banners, streamers, and bunting in celebration of the exposition with Oak Hill clothing store even sporting an oil painting of President Arthur on one side. Even all the city buildings were decorated, including City Hall. A parade of carriages took the President and his entourage, including Generals Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, and Philip Sheridan, to the exposition grounds where Arthur dedicated the exposition. I now declare the Southern Exposition is open, and may God speed the fulfillment of all the lofty ennobling purposes. To which he pulled a rope, which rang bells and started some machinery. <laughs> Afterwards, the President and his party retired to the DuPonts for a luncheon, and the group returned to the Galt House for the rest of the afternoon. On opening night, the group returned to the Exposition for the lighting of the building. Crowds gathered at dusk to watch the miracle of an electric lit building. A chorus of 500 sang, imagine those rehearsals. The 7th Regiment Band of New York, led by Senor Charles A. Kappa, started off the first concert with the William Tell Overture. Much to the light of the female, and presumably some male attendees, Senor Alessandro Liberati was in attendance as the cornet soloist. According to local wider Melville O'Briney again, Liberati was a sight to behold with his limpid brown eyes and curled mustache. From the photos, I could not tell how clear his eyes were, but his mustache was most certainly curled. If anyone missed opening night with the 7th Regiment Band or the handsome Liberati, there were 49 more days times two concerts per day because the band was hired for the first half of the exposition. Only the best exhibits were good enough for the committee. Outside, a horticultural complex contained a hot house growing exotic flora from the deep south as well as a model farm. A sawmill annex was created between the main building and the horticulture complex. Inside the main building, patrons could find machinery and technology of all kinds. A demonstration showed the cotton making process from planting to textile utilizing a quote, beautiful miniature southern plantation to grow examples, then showcasing the cotton gin before being woven into fabric. I didn't find anywhere describing how authentic the plantation was, but I'm hoping workers were paid and not beaten or 
sold off. A silk manufacturer showed off how the silk threads were intertwined to create cloth. Other states were encouraged to set up displays depicting their states and exports. Both the Ohio Falls Geological Society and the Kentucky Geological Survey had their own spaces showing off fossils from the area, including Falls of the Ohio, now an Indiana State Park, across the Ohio River from Louisville. One display was a mechanical hen who would cackle and lay an egg occasionally for a surprised audience. Another had a 20-foot bull created out of brown Dr. Bull's cough syrup bottles, while another had a contraption called the Magic Rider that could test the circulation of your blood as well as tell your fortune for the low, low price of 10 cents. In my initial research, I found an article on a certain public-sourced website that stated most of Central Park was roofed in. Honestly, I may never have started this podcast without further research of Central Park beyond a Wikipedia article. I did find from several sources Central Park had food stalls set up as well as other exhibits and activities. There was a lake for paddle boats, a shooting gallery, and an art gallery. The art gallery held various displays, including pieces from Ulysses S. Grant, John Astor, J.P. Morgan, and the Smithsonian Institute. The park had an outdoor bandstand for the many concerts throughout the day, and fireworks were let off on Thursday nights in the gardens, ensuring an early start to any weekend. The Electric Railway Company, Electric Train, transported patrons throughout the park and expo grounds, winding through the grounds on half a mile track. It drove through a tunnel and over a hill and was all lit by the arc lights. It was created from patents and inventions of the aforementioned Edison and Stephen D. Field. Field named the three-ton, 12-foot-long locomotive the Judge after his uncle, Justice Field. It could get up to nine miles an hour, even pulling a trailer car for passengers. While a success, the train caused trepidation, with some passengers believing the electricity ran throughout the whole car and could affect the passengers. Some would go so far as to jump high over the rails while crossing the track. In reality, the locomotive took current from a center rail between two outer rails that would return the circuit, and while a wire brush on each side was the contact keeping the current on the rails. This very train had spent the whole month of June at the Chicago Railway Exposition, and then it was packed up and brought to Louisville for the Southern Exposition. The last week of the exposition was just as grand as the first. Gilmore's band, headed by Patrick Gilmore, played the last 50 days of the exposition. Could not determine if he had any strikingly handsome players, soloist or not. The final fireworks show was held on November 6th and included European pyrotechnics with names such as Gambrinus, Pigeon House, Ancient Windmill, and the Daisy. As well as your standard Independence Day style rockets, fountains, and bombshells. Average attendance was over 9,000 people a day, and that was only counted Monday through Saturday, totaling over 750,000 in attendance. The exposition would go on for the next four years, adding new exhibits and themes. So, uh, here are some highlights. The 1884 theme was a military exposition with various military equipment, ammunition, and drills. Season passes were available for $8 for adults and $5 for children. That's the equivalent of $250 and $128, respectively. 
And being about 20 years out from the Civil War, there were a few times I found some references to Confederate and Federal, and to be honest, it was a little bit jarring. <laughs> they added a fountain with colored lights to the center of the large building, as well as a 120-foot electric light tower from Jenny Electric, and it provided as much as 200 candle power. There's also an addition of something called fire portraits of presidential candidates and local celebrities during the pyrotechnics show. Plus, very popular for the time, lots of bicycle races. <laughs> there were even artifacts from Greeley's Arctic Exposition to Lady Franklin Bay. And in researching the award medals, I found the 1884 medals no longer had the prize won engraved on the back. It was changed to winner name and city only. The intricate front did remain. Well, 1885 brought the addition of foreign areas, including a Swiss chalet, an Aztec temple, plus areas depicting Mexico, France, Italy, Spain, the Orient, and Russia. And the Orient is a historical quote-unquote term for the East, traditionally comprising anything that belongs to the Eastern world in relationship to Europe. And in English, particularly America, <laughs> Orient or Oriental is associated specifically with the continent of Asia and previously had been an acceptable label for people from East Asia, but I consider that to be a little offensive, you know. So please keep that for a style of rug. <laughs> On a slightly less racist note, while at the World's Industrial and Cotton Centennial Exposition in January of that year, the Southern Exposition Company offered up $200,000 of nearly $1.5 of the total budget to be solely used by African Americans in industry. That's $5.5 of $41.6 today. T. Morris Chester, an African American Civil War veteran and lawyer, noticed the Southern Exposition Company's intent and corresponded with then-President Major Wright. One such letter was published in the Courier-Journal. He said, We are just what society and the circumstances by which we have been surrounded have made us, but since a more liberal spirit seems to be developing a public sentiment strong enough to bear the Negro upon its surface as a man, and pure enough to give him recognition as a citizen, the effect will be productive of a more healthy growth of self-respect and brain power. He continued, Any means that stimulate pride of race and self-respect in a people who have not been much encouraged in that direction would not only be a blessing to us, but eventually a benefit to the country. In inviting us to participate with you in the national display of resources and products, you indicate a significance of substantial progress and impartial justice that will deepen your conviction to be worthy of your confidence and consideration. I'm not sure if he was wholly earnest or if there was a better attitude behind his sentiments. Honestly, it would, it would be warranted. Either way, I agree, African Americans being valued as humans does benefit our country. I didn't find much else going forward about African-American participation, but I hope the money was approved and the individuals were allowed to show their wares. It might be possible some of the African-American participants won awards, but all the medals I could find online only had a generic 
Awarded by the Southern Exposition, Louisville, Kentucky, 1885. Printed on the back. 1885 was the most recent medal I could find online, but there still could have been a jury of awards later on. 1886, dinosaurs and fossils graced the exhibit hall, which included the Ward collection of minerals and specimens. At the time, he was selling sets of minerals to schools and to individuals, so it was a big deal to have him here. There was also a Japanese village with acrobats, which provided to be most popular. In another cringy moment, the word Jap was thrown in several articles, and you know, I forget it was socially acceptable to use that language in print media, of course, but the internet has ruined that moment of decorum we pretended to have. <laughs> a lighthouse replaced the fountain in the main building in the center. The art gallery now moved to the main building from Central Park, which was dropped from the exhibition to save money, and it also had some trouble getting help from the American Art Association and the prize fund exhibition. Nearby, an event area with a lake was built to perform a production of The Last Days of Pompeii, complete with an erupting Vesuvius and including pyrotechnics. And a novelty exhibit was, of all things, a washing machine. 1887 had no opening ceremonies, parades, or speeches, mostly to save money. The exposition gained a Shetland pony track in the main building, and the Japanese acrobats returned. Professor Herman, a magician also called Herman the Great, uh, dazzled audiences. Patrons were also entertained by the Bijou Opera Company, and opening day was set for August 27, but it only lasted for six weeks. The admission was knocked down to 25 cents for adult and 10 cents for a child for the whole season. It was decided this would be the last year for the Great Southern Exposition, although the idea of a carnival was bandied around a bit. I did find where there were two lawsuits against the exposition, so it seems to have lost its grandeur over the years. Although the Southern Exposition went out with a whimper, it was more successful in previous years. The 1883 exposition was only surpassed in numbers by the two London World's Fairs, one of them being the first ever World's Fair, and the Philadelphia Centennial Celebration. In fact, out of the 600 carloads of machinery that were imported in for the 1883 expo, only 100 went unsold. The Southern Exposition not only influenced Louisville's transition into the 20th century, but is still influencing it today. The Kentucky State Fair, held in August, has the same feel with an exposition hall filled with military and farm equipment, booths for each Kentucky county, and a midway full of food and activities. Edison's largest display of light stimulated growth of electrically lit interiors more than any other. The St. James Court neighborhood was built on the site of the exhibit hall, and the courts and alleys of the neighborhood mimic those of the building. Head over to the blog for a comparison of the event grounds versus the area today. You'll notice that the Central Park trails have not really changed much in 130 plus years. I also just found out about a bar opening in downtown Louisville on a portion of Main Street called Whiskey Row. It was influenced by none other than the Southern Exposition, so stay tuned for my review on the decor and the librations. And join me next episode for a trip with the Wizard of Menlo Park. 
Thomas Edison has more ties with Louisville than just lending his employees and equipment for the Southern Exposition, and we'll find out next time. Find the Burrow Podcast at Burrow Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, burrowpodcast.blogspot.com, and you can email me at burrowpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time. Thank you.